Hello, you're listening to Drawn to the Flame, a podcast for aficionados of Arkham Horror, the card game. Every fortnight or month or whenever we can manage it, we look at a trait like ally or weapon or spell or something like that, or we look at particular cards, or you might even hear me unboxing a pack for the first time, or sometimes we do bigger topics like interviewing someone who likes the game or giving guides for newer players like perhaps today's episode might be. My name's Frank and today I'm joined by... It's me, Peter. Hello. Hi, Peter. How are you? I'm very well. Much much better than last week. Thank you for asking. How about yourself? <laughs> yes, I am similarly also much better than last week. Thank Great you. Great stuff. Great stuff. Yeah. So what are we talking about today, Peter? Well, this is an episode we've, we've kind of been planning and talking about for some time, I feel. Uh, what we want to do is talk about deck building. Exactly. And what we really want to do is not just talk about the ideas of deck building or the concepts in isolation. We want to talk about the overarching approaches to deck building. And I'll try not to hammer home that too much, but it's not just about the nuts and bolts of the deck building, but also what are the bigger pictures that you might want to bear in mind when you're deck building. And for me, my opening feeling about deck building is just keep trying. And I say that as someone who's not a passionate deck builder or I'm not necessarily a passionate deck builder. Uh, when I've played other card games, I've often come into the game and been a little bit daunted by the size of the card pool and working out how to build a deck and keeping all the deck building rules in mind. And so, yeah, my, my starting piece of advice is just to jump in and give it a try. Make a deck just because you like the idea of a card and you want to try it. You go, wow, pickpocketing, that's a really cool card. I'm going to put that in. So don't be in Arkham about you know destroying scenarios. Be about having fun. The other, the, one of the, the best, biggest tips I can give anyone who wants to start making their own decks is to sign up for an account on an online deck builder. The one I would wholeheartedly recommend, and Frank can't do this because he's biased, the one I would recommend is, is Arkham DB. Uh, I've used Netrunner DB for, for Yonks, and that's fantastic. Arkham DB is based on a similar API, I believe is the correct internet phrase, uh, maintained yeah. by someone else. It's slight differences, but it, but it is so good. It lets you you build your decks, you can you can upgrade them, you can add experience, you can swap cards in and out. You've got plenty of space to save them. You can even publish them, share them with other people. There are other deck building sites. I know Card Game DB. You can do deck building on there, and the advantage there is that it's got forums built in as well. But just as a straight up simple deck builder that anyone can get to grips with, Arkham DB is great. One of the key things it does is it when you as soon as you start building a deck, it filters out everything you can't put in, <laughs> so you're only looking at cards that you can actually add to your deck, which is great. So there are there are maybe three features that I want to just particularly highlight on Arkham DB. One is exactly, as you said, the, the filtering effect. And what also you can do there is you can tell ArkhamDB what packs you own. So if you're coming to this game and you only have a core set, you can just click core set and you can un unselect all the other packs and it won't suggest you cards that you don't actually have in your collection, which is fantastic. The second thing is I think, you don't I think have you can to e publish your deck. You, you can even oh, sorry, filter down to... A, sorry, you can even filter down to a single core as well, I believe. So yeah, you haven't yeah, yeah, you have to click if you have a second... Yeah. Yeah. The second thing is you don't have to publish your deck. Some people, as soon as they've done it, they publish it. They don't write anything about their deck. They just sort of put it out there. But if, you, if you're if you concerned about people seeing your deck, which you shouldn't be worried about, but if you don't want people to know, you can have your deck unpublished and still be able to upgrade it with experience or go and change it. And it will track the edits that you make. So you'll have a nice log of changes you've made through the deck building process but it can be completely private to you and no one else can see it. And that's really useful as well. If you want a resource for thinking about decks, that's not just your piles of cards, you've got it there. And then the final thing is that individual cards on Arkham DB, if you go to their pages, they do have FAQ entries added to them. And the reason I know that is because I've been adding them recently. This is why I'm biased about Arkham DB. So if you're playing and you're not sure about how a card works, it might be worth jumping on the DB and seeing if there's a frequently asked question on it. Not every card has one, and only very slowly adding things, but it's there as a handy resource as well. Okay, so first up, uh, should I 
quickly run through my new player guide. Yeah. So that this is this is for your your brand new to card games, brand new to LCGs. You've got all the cards, or however many cards you've got. You're sitting in your living room carpet, and you've got your cards spread around you. Hopefully, you don't have a cat like I do, suddenly interested in every every move you make. Yeah, or a housemate who suddenly comes in with the Hoover. As well. <laughs> yeah, that's 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 never good. So I think the Mythos Busters guys have looked at this this kind of topic. We, we want to talk more generally. Um, so the Mythos Busters have done a good podcast on this, I believe. So it's definitely worth checking those out. I'll, I'll mention them grudgingly because apparently we're supposed to have a feud. Yeah, blood feud, I believe it is. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so so my, my basic recipe for making a deck would be that this this is for making your very first deck this is the way i would go about it i think it's just a step-by-step guide and then we'll talk more in detail afterwards about the kind of concepts behind it first up you pick the investigator you fancy the most whichever one you want to play with go for that this this guides you this is your recipe for your deck so it it, it plots out the course you're going to take um in your deck building and probably how you play it as well. Once you've got the investigator, that narrows down the other cards you've got to look at. So you're no longer looking at, you know, a couple of hundred cards. That's shrunk massively. Yeah. And just looking on the back of that investigator, if it says they can only take Guardian and Seeker cards, say, you can happily slide all of your green, red and purple cards to one side because you don't even need to think about them for this particular investigator. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So, uh, once you've done that, you you pick your your I guess your bread and butter cards. So the ones that you know are always useful to see. You probably want uh, ways to gather some clues. Uh, you want a way to deal with deal with enemies, whether that's fighting or evading. Even if those aren't the core focus of your investigator, um, you want ways to be able to do those just to deal with the game. And then you probably want to consider how you're going to make resources if you need them. So, you know, typically that's emergency cash or something like that. I would also pick in between four and eight skill cards as well, just so you can throw those into tests when you need them. So we'll talk more about all of those details later on, but and like where Peter's getting those numbers from and what you could define as bread and butter. But just as a starting point, if you just have those broad things in mind, that's a very good place to be. Yeah. So, so once you've got that bread and butter in place, then you have, if this is a sandwich metaphor, you've now got the filling of the sandwich and the kind of the stuff that makes it exciting. So, you know, maybe it's chili marmalade or, you know, turkey jam and cereal or whatever. Uh, this this is where you can put in your personality, you know, the cards you want to see in play. Uh, if you're using one of the Dunwich investigators, they can have five out of faction cards. So this is a good opportunity to bring in some, some exciting cards to add to the mix. Try and make sure everything is working together and working with your investigator's ability. So don't pick cards in isolation. Think about the the deck as a whole. At this point, you've probably got about 50 cards you want to include. Um, <laughs> count up your cards, you know, cut back things you think you're not going to use. Maybe have a look at the costs as well. Um, you, ideally, you want a nice smooth curve from cheap cards to expensive cards. So you've always got something you can play. Uh, and then you're done. That's it. Throw it together and then try and tr- try the deck. As you said, it's all about trying and uh, not worrying too much if things don't work because you can tweak it later. Yeah. And I mean, that thing about trying is if it's the first time you've ever built a deck, that's fine. And be okay, and be ready to just give it a try. It doesn't have to be the perfect deck at that point. And if it's been a process of deck building that's taken you sort of four and a half or five hours and you found it really painful, you're probably going to be less inclined to want to just jump into a scenario and play it then. So if you can at all possibly wear the process lightly and sort of jump in, that's always helpful. That also, I think also in saying that, it makes it sound like I think deck building is really laborious. And I should really emphasize that I really enjoy deck building now. And I think I enjoy it because I've just sort of tried and tried again, as it were. What Peter's described is a great guide for if you're first deck building. But what do you want to do, dear listener, if you want to build in in other ways? Or are there other ways that you can approach the idea of deck building itself? Well, yes, there are, Frank. <laughs> oh, thank 
goodness you said that. <laughs> I wasn't sure whether you were going to say it or I was going to say it, so I dived in. I guess I'll I'll pick I'll I'll pick uh, often how I deck build. Uh, I'm going off personal experience here. Um, is I find an idea or an interaction between a few cards that I like, and then look at building a deck around that. So everyone knows. Oh no. I've realised someone, one of the listeners to the podcast, said to the other day he's he's keeping account of every time I mention Firax, um, and we're barely we're barely ten minutes in, I think, and I'm already mentioning <laughs> Firax. Um, but your Firax, Firax sponsorship <laughs> money is through the roof. <laughs> Firax and Dark Horse that came out in the last pack, I I looked at those and I thought, well, there's there's a combo there, so I put them together in a deck and. Once you put those those cards in, then you start to look at what investigator these fit in. At that point, what other cards work well? Uh, what other cards that I would normally have don't work well because I'm, you know, in this case, I'm looking to have no money. Yeah. And that's how I would go often go about building a deck. If I've just got a mad idea when I'm sitting sitting down at work, I'll fire up Arkham DB, stick those cards in, and then work from there. Yeah. So so I did a similar thing in a Roland deck. So I was thinking about how if you want to play Roland well, you want to make sure that there's an enemy on your location when your location has a clue. And the reason you want that is one, because when he kills an enemy, he gets a clue. So you don't want to kill enemies where there aren't clues. And two, because his signature asset gives him a plus three strength bonus, combat bonus, if there's a clue on his location. So immediately there are two cards that within a Roland deck that work together. So I then started looking at other cards that like clues to be on your location. So I found that Inquiring Mind, which is a skill card that you can only commit to tests if there are three if there's one clue on your location, it gives you three wild icons, also wants a clue. And similarly, if you want to play Art Student, which allows you to discover a clue on your location, there should probably be a clue there first before you play the art student. The art student Roland likes because she has two sanity and that would top up his sanity. So I I did a similar thing to Peter where I, I had those cards in mind, Roland and then a couple of seeker cards that he could take. And I started to sort of toss that around of, well, what does that mean then if, I, if I'm running art student? Do I want to run any other allies? And if so, should they be cheaper allies? Because you don't want to pay for an expensive ally and that stops you paying for art student. And, and things like that. That's that's where I began with that deck idea, and it was just a sort of a simple idea that I then I, I sort of walked down that path and saw where it took, saw where it led me. So another, you've got you've got the focusing on a one investigator. You've also got focusing on a single idea. Another way you can build a deck is to really lean into the role play element of the game and build what's known as a theme deck where you're picking things that aren't necessarily mechanical reasons to choose cards. So an example might be Zoe, and because you have Zoe in heart, she has a knife and she worked as a chef, you could do something along the lines of a Zoe knives deck, where you put in kukri and knife and machete, maybe even a fire axe, and she doesn't use any ranged weapons, she just likes chopping things up at close range. I must admit, so... While I've made a couple of theme decks, theme sort of influences how I build decks whenever I'm building them. I always feel weird about adding guns to Zoe because she doesn't seem like the kind of person who would use a gun. Yeah, so I'm always like, people talk about Zoe shotgun decks. I'm like, would would Zoe use a shotgun? It just doesn't seem quite right. Surely that's a Roland card. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I suppose the interesting thing about theme decks is theme deck can be a really rewarding way of building because all of the things about thinking about mechanics or thinking about the the spread of assets, events and skills in your deck go out the window and you're just thinking about what would Zoe do or what would Wendy do? What, you know, what do I want to put in here because that's the person I want to play as? And that's great and really can make deck building really simple. But the one thing I would say as a caveat is 
don't be surprised if when you're then playing that deck it doesn't have all of the mechanical answers for the things you need there's uh, one of the fellows on the mythos busters podcast is scott and he actually has his own theme deck which is 30 good cards that's the theme <laughs> is 30 good cards that seems Obviously quite strong <laughs> yeah slightly different theme but i really like that as an example of highlighting what might go wrong with a theme deck that you might refuse to include cards not because they're they're good or bad but because they don't fit in your deck so i'm just i'm just mentioning that as a slight risk if you go well i'm gonna play as daisy say and so i'm gonna put in all the tomes and nothing else you might run into difficulties where you can't do the things that you'll need to be able to do like evade or cast a spell or something else in daisy because you've decided she's only a librarian so I, I guess the other thing that some people might do is I've seen players ask for this or, or, or newer players ask for this in Bitten Arkham also in other other card games where they say how many of each type of card should I put in um, and what the split should be. I'm, I guess I'm a fan of letting it flow organically from how you're building a deck but I don't think you can go far wrong with with an even split of assets events and skills you probably want maybe a couple more assets and a couple fewer skill cards but i i I would i would hesitate to say that should drive your the way you put your deck together i don't know what you feel about that i i agree i think it's a, a good thing to check in on but it's not it doesn't have to be hard and fast if we're talking about numbers i think the more important number to consider when you're building is uh your slots so th- this, people often say slots to mean deck slots, as in one of your 30 cards. In this context, we mean slot as in hand, arcane, body, accessory, or ally. That's a good one. Well done. Yeah, yeah, I have played this game. So, so yeah, I, I would say, I mean, we, we've talked about this in the past, I think. And slots is a really interesting part of of deck building and i think i'm going to have to rein myself in so i don't speak for 20 minutes on deck building around slots i think as a rough rule of thumb you probably want four or five cards for your double slots if you're using them or up to four or five cards for your double slots and then up to two or three for your single slots and that includes duplicates so for weapons in a more fighting focused build i'd maybe go Two of one weapon, two of another weapon, and then one of a backup weapon. Yeah, uh, and then and then for a single slot, maybe two, you know, a, a duplicate, and then a backup ally as well. This, I mean, it, it's flexible, but but yeah, I, I, one of the things you might want to do is consider your final, you know, in an ideal world, if you just could pull the cards from your deck and put them into play, what you'd want your rig to look like. Rig's the net runner word, but you know your 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 board state. So I want these two weapons, this ally, this body slot. This is what I want, and then you can maybe build your deck towards that. Yeah, if you if when you sit down and you look at the slots, you've got six cards that take up the body slot. Maybe something's gone a bit wrong there, and maybe you know you're not gonna. At most, you're maybe gonna only put down one or two of those. So maybe maybe six is too much. And I guess playing into that, we've got charisma and relic hunter. Which mess up the whole thing. Because what I've just said is that you want to build your deck around what you want in play. Charisma and Relican to both change mid-campaign what what is available. You've got sort of... If if you know... I, I won't talk about this too much because it's, I guess it's a minor concern in the big picture. Mm. You might want to pick those up because of story assets filling the slot. Or you might want to start off with your deck built for have, picking those up later. <laughs> So if I'm making like a kind of academic army daisy deck, so I've got all the students that are coming into play, maybe I know after the first scenario I'm going to pick up charisma. Yeah, and you know that that early on that that's a decision that that you're going to make. Exactly. Or I'm lucky and I'm a rogue and I can pick adaptable and I can just swap them in when I want. Yeah. The nice thing about slots that might be frustrating for a newer player is that it's not the slots are hard and fast, but how many cards you need in your deck aren't hard and fast. So, for instance, I might run six cards that I want in my hands, of which only ever will have two. So say that's a couple of flashlights as well as some weapons in a in a sort of do-everything deck. 
flashlights have charges and they run out of charges. So even though they take up a slot, they only take up a slot for the length of time that they have the charges, after which it's fine to uh, play a different card and replace the original card. And similarly, those academic allies, because their ability triggers upon entering play, once you've played a research librarian and fetched a tome, they're just a fairly minor body. They're not giving you a static boost, so it's okay to play over them as well. So that can slightly confuse the maths around how many you should or shouldn't have. And you might see more experienced players say, well, if I see Rabbit's Foot in my opening hand, I'll put it down. And then when I draw Agnes's um, heirloom, I'll obviously play that over the top of Rabbit's Foot. So they will use the slot for a period of time for one card until they see the card that they really want in that slot so that just that just sort of complicates it but again thinking about slots is just a useful thing to have in mind when you're trying to evaluate the deck that you've built and and get a sense before doing the practice and playing in scenarios about whether or not it's actually going to work i guess the last thing to to bring up in in the, in the big picture really of deck building of of as you're sitting there throwing cards in is are you building this to play solo or are you building it to play with more than one person um, and this is i think this is interesting because it's not something i've inc- I've, I've had to worry about in deck building before my background in netrunner means i'm only ever playing two player games but i guess maybe lord of the rings players are more more familiar with this I, can you play that solo i'm not sure yeah 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 there uh, but, they are. well there you go what you might want to consider is if you're playing solo you need to be more flexible with your deck so being more specialized is less of an option by yourself you're going to need to be able to collect all the clues needed to advance uh, you're going to have to deal with the enemies that come out and you're going to have to deal with all the other encounter cards you don't have someone there to pull the enemies off you or whatever so yeah what well, a great great example to think about is is the gathering the very first scenario in the core set you're going to need to be able to get clues in your study and then you're going to need to be able to get clues from the attic and from the cellar. You need to get at least one from one location and two from the other in solo. So that means you're going to have to have a way of getting a clue from a four shroud location. And then before that scenario ends, there's going to be the ghoul priest who has four fight, four evade and five health. And you'll need to have some way of dealing with that, either getting out the way and resigning or a way of doing damage to a certain extent so just just having those three things in mind clues in the study clues in the attic and cellar and then the ghoul priest if your deck can deal with those three you're probably in a good place should we delve a bit deeper and <laughs> think good. about how maybe more the nuts and bolts that how, how i the individual cards and uh how many of them and that kind of stuff and the, the, the skills i use when i'm deck building rather than the big picture yeah, let's. So we've we've gone some of the different approaches. Let's go back in. I suppose one of the questions I have in mind that I'm hoping you can answer is, when you've thrown that deck together and you've played, how you actually evaluate what's working and isn't working, and maybe that's something we can touch on. Yeah, this this is an interesting one. It, it's <laughs> it, it's always clouded by your pet cards, <laughs> but I I think the best thing to do is just to be conscious when you're sitting there with a handful of cards what cards are sitting in your hand and not getting played or are more useful to be committed to a test. Yeah. And we've had a few cards like this where we thought they'd be really useful on first blush and they've gone straight in the deck. But actually, on reflection after a few games, they're very rarely getting played. I know, I mean, a couple of examples. Bait and Switch seemed really good on paper, but actually, as we played, the way we were playing, it never really worked out. And it was just sitting in my friend's yeah. hand. So he, he swapped that out and got some cards he's using more of. I had a, a completely similar experience with Think on Your Feet that I was like, oh, great, I can avoid an enemy. And then what I found is often I didn't want to avoid the enemy because then I'd be leaving it for a a playing partner to deal with, which actually I didn't want to do. And and, and Seeking Answers is the other one. I, I was quite surprised because I I thought I was going to be using that all the time. That the, the theory of it is great. I had it in my Rex deck for a long time and the theory and Rex is great because you find a clue at a neighbouring location with an enemy there and then you find one at your location as well with Rex ability. But actually, like, I, I don't think I've... In, in, our, in our blind campaign, I don't think I've used it once. <laughs> um, mm. 
which mm. which is the sign of a card that's taking up deck space and not not helping me. You're completely right. And then the flip side of that, if I can just give an example, is something like Brother Xavier that we both looked at and it's five cost, which is at the high end of the cost for a card. It gives you plus one willpower, which is nice because it's a static boost. And yet Brother Xavier also then has an ability for when he leaves play. So there's this, you know, you want the static boost, but you also want him to leave play. And we both felt we couldn't quite get our heads around the card. And we both found playing Brother Xavier that he has a lot of utility in a lot of different situations. And the fact that he does all these different things is actually really powerful in a card. We've def- yeah, yeah, definitely. Yeah. We, we've, I, I, I was guilty of underrating him. And since I've been playing with him, I've really, really got on well. And I, I think that that's, yeah, like you say, you know, on the one hand, you're looking at cards in your hand that you aren't using. But at the other time, at the, on the other hand, you want to be looking at the game as you're playing and considering what cards would help you more, you know? Yeah. An example of that is is always, I find, Taunt, which is one of the reasons I rate it so highly. It's not only that it's always useful when I draw it, but also that sometimes I'm sitting there in a sticky situation thinking, well, if only I had a Taunt. And if you're finding that about particular cards, you know, add it in. And if... If you already yeah, have it the in, point that which you cheat, right? And you start adding. Force <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, add it in, and if 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 you've already added added it in, think about a way to get it get it more reliably or get more copies of it. Yeah, for sure. I, it's there's this sort of threefold evaluation that might go on at a at a point in a scenario where you're stuck. You're looking at your hand, going, "What's good and bad in my hand?" You're looking at the the board state so the decisions you've made up to that point going well where have I gone wrong here should I have really played this shotgun on the table when actually I need to get clues now and then you're also ideally thinking about what's in your deck that you've built you know what's left and thinking where are there, are there any cards in my deck that can actually can actually help me here so you've, you've got sort of three different points to evaluate and each one can give you a useful nugget of information that might help you change the deck in future or might allow you to make decisions differently when you build your next deck i mean the the one the advice i would give on judging the effectiveness of cards and this is something i've used in i think every game i've played or it has become apparent to me after after a few years of experience when you're looking at a card and you're evaluating what you'll use it for the more times you say if the worse the card is going to be or the the more niche what can happen is a particular card can be clutch in a just a particular situation you know you've used it once and it's you know single-handedly won you the game but that situation comes up once every 50 times you play actually you'd probably be better off with something less flashy but more reliable in that situation you know for that slot so if, if you're looking i mean if we go back to the cards we both have decided you know maybe these aren't right for us say seeking answers it is useful mm. if there's a clue at my location I want to discover. If there's a clue at a neighbouring location I want to discover. If that location has a high shroud or it has an enemy. Yeah. If that location has already been discovered as well. Yeah, exactly. If there's it even a clue there. to have also been flipped. Yeah. So we're starting to stack on the ifs onto that. Situ- on, onto that. And you consider another card could be in that slot, say like a shortcut. And a shortcut helps me in that situation because I could investigate shortcut to the other location then investigate there as well as the other stuff that shortcut can possibly do shortcut is a lot more generally useful i'm saying if a lot less often with shortcut yeah sometimes those really powerful cards like shortcut can almost seem they they almost um go under the radar with their power taunt is another great example actually it's a fast free action that gets an enemy engage with you and you think well i can just engage it tense spending an action how often will i actually need to engage it for free and it's actually the lack of ifs that's really telling there there's a lot of different uh, times and applications for a card like taunt similarly card like dodge there are a lot of times when it would just be nice to spend one resource and not get hit and that could be because you want to put down a player card and you're going to take an attack of opportunity it could be because you're going to end a turn with an enemy engaged with you and you want to avoid that it could be because you're going to fight a very difficult enemy 
and they're going to retaliate if you fail the test and that's going to have knock-on effects you want to avoid that damage so immediately there are a lot of different scenarios there that it's it's the opposite of if i suppose yeah i think it, it, it's telling that those cards you've you've we've mentioned taunt and shortcut they they always have an effect on the game like i could never i could never well shortcut especially taunt maybe less so i could never not use a shortcut to move you know shortcut is always going to save me an action taunt i mean if i'm playing a fighting character i'm most games i'm going to spend an action to engage an enemy so taunt is always going to save me at least one action there's no if involved there it'll save me an action as well as possibly having a, a more efficient use this ties into a bigger picture concept around playing the game which is one of resources and i don't just mean the actual tokens resources i mean the different economies that you have within the game so you have your resource tokens you have your cards and you have your actions so this sort of little triangle of three different things and ideally you're turning your resources and your cards through spending actions into some kind of success working out the balance between those three can be really tricky again it's something that you need experience in but finding out say paying three for a machete works out you then can take four five six fight actions that offer you know all get plus one that starts to be a really reasonable exchange whereas paying five for a dynamite blast that only does three damage because you only hit one enemy you start to think that well it was a one-off action so it only cost me one action but it cost me five resources and it only did three damage but there's no hard and fast rule there it's not always about cheaper is better or fewer actions is better but it's just something to bear in mind this this pyramid between the three different things and how they interact and then some of the most fun investigators to play are the ones that add uh, some kind of complication to that so as i mentioned roland with clues you have agnes who likes to play with her horror as a sort of fourth resource when she when she uses horror for damage when she doesn't you've got jenny who skews everything by getting more resources so there's there's all these sort of different different aspects to that i suppose so speaking in that pyramid then of your of resources cards and actions on cards and on building a deck peter how do you decide what cards in your deck should be two ofs and which should be one ofs yeah there's a i think i mean my tendency in arkham would be to just have everything that's two of and you you maybe that's never going to hurt you really i think going everything over two of i think it it a lot of card games they have you can pick it's up to four in magic of each card and then um netrunner and i think uh, Conquest is some of the ones that's up to three. So two of a card, there's not a huge amount of difference. But sometimes it is still only worth having one of a card. And most of the story cards that get added to your deck will only be added as a one of anyway. So the kind of questions you want to be asking yourself are, do I want to draw this card early? Do I want to draw it reliably early? Like, is this the kind of card that is a linchpin of my deck? You know, and I'm, I'm suffering if I haven't got it out. Uh, do I mind drawing a second copy after I've drawn the first copy? Uh, so, you know, does it have useful pips? Um, is it unique? Uh, is it very specific? Yeah. And does the second copy, when I take the second copy, am I cutting out a more useful card that I could have had? So I think an example of a card you might only want one of would be something like a Dynamite Blast, which is which is you can probably only afford to play it once a game anyway. Yeah. And it's... Uh, it's quite a specific card. There's there's situations where a dynamite blast is very useful, but I don't think they're necessarily that numerous. And an, another weapon or a way to find a weapon, like a machete, as you say, is probably more useful than the second dynamite. No, quite, exactly. Adding to the mix of that, obviously cards that are unique, as you mentioned, that gets more complicated. So if you've played Dr. Milan Christopher, he's taken your ally slot, so you don't really want to see any other allies. And if you draw a second copy of him unless something very inopportune happens and he is discarded and you want to play the second one, probably the first Milan is going to stick around. But also you want to see Milan early because yeah, you, you absolutely want, want to see boost him. and yeah. you want that resource boost from successfully investigating. So that's a bit of a balancing act at that point where probably because the card is powerful, you run two of him and you just accept that one of him is not going to see play and it's just going to be a spare card of course if you play survivor 
Both survivor investigators that we have in the game at the moment, Wendy Adams and Ash Campeet, have ways of turning cards in their hand into other things. So Wendy can discard a card to redraw a chaos token, and Pete can discard a card once a turn to ready Duke, who gives him very powerful actions. So again, having said, here's all the things you should bear in mind, that slightly gets skewed if you play survivor, where cards in their hand have three uses rather than two. They can be committed to tests or played or used for the survivor abilities. While, while that's true, don't don't fall into the trap of... The, 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 you might as well put good cards in rather than putting cards in just to use for, for say, Wendy's ability. Definitely. Yeah. Yeah. These ten cards are just my Wendy for now. <laughs> yeah. I won't be playing them. That's, they might as well be good cards as well, you know. <laughs> yeah. And that, that, I mean, this is, this is not a deck-building thing, but this is something we've sort of been talking about. How do you evaluate the cards in your hand... How do you evaluate the cards in your deck? And at what point is a card more valuable for the icons on it and less valuable as a card that's played? So, you know, some, drawing something like a magnifying glass in the final turn of a of a scenario, you're probably not investigating at that point unless it's a scenario that requires heavy investigation to finish off, at which point the magnifying glass is fairly useless. It's a, an intellect icon and that's all. And Often we've seen the shape of scenarios that intellect icons are very powerful early on when there's a lot of investigating to do. And if the scenario moves into any kind of combat or a different sort of situation, the intellect icons decline in value as the scenario goes on. That way of learning when a card is more useful for its icons than for its ability and for being played is not something I think there's a hard and fast rule for, and I think it's just a case of getting used to trying it out. Mm -hmm. Obviously, if you're emptying your hand in the first turn, throwing all of the cards in your hand to tests, you're setting yourself back in terms of getting cards on the table that will give you long-term benefits. So I'd say that if that's how you play, maybe something's going wrong there. But beyond that, it's really a case of trying again, as I've said, jumping in and seeing how things go. If you're finding that you're getting to the end of a scenario and you've, you've got no cards in your hand and no resources and nothing on the table, something's probably going wrong. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I, th I think we have, we have, we have rambled on. Sorry, we've, we've talked incisively for, for quite a while. So I, I don't want to go on too much longer, but one of the questions I think maybe a lot of people have, in fact, that I still have sometimes is, is card draw, which is, which is, sometimes hard to balance i think what, what what's what's your opinion on putting in cards that well, card draw cards in your deck uh i think it's fine i think or how many do we want the which ones do we want for instance yeah and i think i think rabbit's foot is a really great example here rabbit's foot you draw a card if you fail a test so that means you take a test and, and the test doesn't work out the way you wanted it to because i imagine most tests you take you want to succeed and the card draw is a sort of uh, second place prize in silver medal because you at least you at least get something out of the action, so you don't waste an action. I think that's a really strong card, but actually, if you want to win scenarios, you don't want to fail tests. So, it the better you do, the less useful it becomes as a card. I I'm a big fan of cards that replace themselves. So the neutral skill cards, upgraded lucky, upgraded emergency cash. I think. They're not explicitly card draw, but because they replace themselves, there's no risk of of emptying your hand out in that way. I think we've we're at a point in our in one of our scenarios where everyone's got an upgraded lucky. Uh, sorry, um, an upgraded emergency cash, and yeah. it's it, it, it's it's so much better. Just you rarely think about whether you want to spend the action to play cash. Yeah, because it will give you another option in your gives, hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it gives you another card. I mean, sometimes it's. <laughs> Where Arkham is a bit awkward is that sometimes it's a bad thing because you're you're down to the last five or six cards in your deck and you haven't drawn your weakness and <laughs> you you need some resources <laughs> and you don't want to draw any more cards. But but nine times out of ten, you know, getting another card while you do that is great. Yeah, I mean, at, at root, in case it's not clear, if you're going into a situation within a scenario where you have eight cards in your hand compared to going into a situation in a scenario where you have two, the eight cards in hand is always going to be better 
unless that situation is take a damage for every card in your hand, which isn't a situation we know of yet. But apart from that specific situation, (laughs) having lots of options in hand, even if the options are something as simple as, oh, well, I'll chuck all three of these cards to really help with this evade test, or, you know, oh, I have to investigate very hard here, so I'm going to play this deduction or whatever it is. Just having that in hand is better. You could fill your deck with all of the wonders on this earth, but if you don't ever see those cards, they may as well be blank. I guess the issue is that the card, the specific cards that draw you with the cards, so preposterous sketches, cryptic research, mainly, and old book of law, <laughs> people will have spotted the problem is that they're all seeker cards. So if you can't take seeker cards, there's there's almost no card draw cards that you can pick. Or, or dedicated card drawing cards, right? Um, yeah, but there are, each faction does have an option. I'm glad you brought that up. You know, seekers can go over the top with card draw, but... Well, yeah, yeah, I, I guess where you... Sorry, I, well, I should really expand my point. You can... So the purpose of card draw, if you look at it to fill your hand, seekers have that have that locked down, really, with, with, with their cards. But if you're looking at card draw as a way of finding a card in your deck which really everyone wants to do, because why else have they put cards in their deck? You look at, let's say, Mystic have got Arcane Initiate, yep. which is a really good one to... Guardian in. have got prepared for the worst. Yeah, both very good cards. Uh, Mystic, in, um, sorry, Arcane Initiate, very useful, especially early on where you've got fewer spells in your deck. You don't have, say, Song of the Dead in yet, and you need to find those scryings as your Mystic. Arcane Initiate can really help you do that. Yeah, I suspect you mean shrivelings rather than scryings. Yeah, that's... <laughs> maybe you found a way of scrying enemies to defeat them. You just well, if you scry, then then you just sh- sh- keep shuffling them down. That's that's what I do. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were going to like read it its future, and <laughs> it would be so. I see shriveling in your future. That would that would terrify the enemy enough. Well, no. What happens is you, you then you use this the scrying to look at the top three cards of your deck, and then try and find the shriveling of your own deck. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Which you could do anyway with the Arcanistia. Anyway, I'm being uh, pedantic here. Yeah, no, you're completely right. I mean, so card drawing rogue at the moment is pickpocketing. So that's a very conditional card draw that you need an enemy and you need to evade it successfully. I, w- I would go so far as to say you shouldn't rely on pickpocketing to be your card draw. Yeah, I think that's fair. But what we know from LCGs anyway, from the division within different factions or classes or colours, what's often referred to as the colour pie, is that not all abilities need to necessarily be represented in each colour. We know most investigators can take at least two colours in their decks, if not all five, if they're a Dunwich investigator. And so one of the advanced deck building pieces of advice is thinking about what your main colour can and can't do, your main class, and thinking about how you could support that. Cool. Closing tips? I mean, one of my closing tips is uh, there's this concept called net decking, uh, where you just you go on and you copy a deck from a deck building website, and it's it's often said in in a bit of a pejorative tone of voice, as if it's not the way real people play. But I would I would ignore those people, uh, and I would say when you're starting out, copying a deck that someone else who's had a lot of experience building decks and has tried copying one of their decks is a very good way to get started because what you can then do is riff on that deck and swap a few cards in and out and seeing what works what when you make changes what works there or possibly thinking about why they've put in the cards they've put in i think that that's a very good way to get started and i encourage people to to, this is one of the benefits of of having you know an arkham db or a card game db account is that you can look at the popular decks read the comments read the description and understand how they're put together yeah it's if if you said to me build me a house and you gave me just one piece of a4 with a picture of a house on it and i'd never seen a house before that's quite a daunting prospect but if you said build me a house come and walk around this house first look here's how a door works here are windows this is a ceiling it has four walls and a roof I have a lot more to go off when I start to build that terrible house that I'm going to build for you. <laughs> Incidentally, Peter asked me last week if I'd build him a house. So <laughs> guess what I'm doing? Yeah. 
my my closing point, the thing that I think about maybe the most, and I hope this is the most useful point, is about cross-referencing. So if your approach is to build for a specific investigator, or your approach is to build using one idea or one card that you really want to try out, or if your approach is you want that fun theme deck, you want to do uh, Rich Jenny Barnes can handle everything by throwing money at it, that's absolutely fine. And what you can do is build that deck, you've got your 30 cards, and then if you lay them out and just think, well, does this work from the point of view of the investigator? Does this work from the point of view of accentuating the strengths of the class? You also, in the laying out, you can go, well, I can just quickly check, have I put in all five cost or higher cards? Have I put in 26 assets and four events and no skills? And you can use those different broader concepts as a way of just checking where you're at. None of them are hard and fast rules. That, that That's not to say that your 26 asset deck is wrong. It could be great. You could have found something new. But you'll at least have these touchstones to check in and go, okay, well, this might be a slightly strange deck because I've not put as many events or skills in as the sort of the generally accepted balanced point. And again, the power of Arkham DB is that when you've put a deck in, you can look and see how many icons you have in your deck. So it will tell you how many cards you can commit to tests and what icons they have. It also will do a graph for you and show you how many cards cost what. So you get a sense of the resource cost curve. If there's a massive spike at the five resource, maybe it's going to be a very expensive deck to run. You need to think, have you got enough resource generation in your deck? And then the final thing you can do on ArkhamDB that's wonderful is you can ask it to draw you five cards. And so what you could do is hit five cards and just have a look at them and think, well, is there anything I can play on my opening turn that will help me here? Or is there anything that's really missing? And then you can hit reset and draw them again. And people suggest this similarly, not on ArkhamDB, but in real life. You can draw yourself a hand of five cards and just play a first turn or play a, play a couple of turns without worrying about what's coming off the encounter deck. Just going, well, what would I do here if you've drawn it? A hand and it's all things that you can't play or all completely situational cards you know a, a bait and switch a think on your feet uh, an i'm outer here and you know a sneak attack and there's something else and none of those things will have any immediate application to helping you advance through the scenario maybe you want to think about the balance or good time to practice your deck evaluation think, well, is this a freak hand that I've drawn? Because you might draw a freak hand at times. It doesn't mean that the deck is junk. It might just be a fluke. Cool. Uh, well, uh, yeah, I think that's very interesting. Thank you, Frank. Yeah, my, my kicker is it's not about having to tick every single box. It's about being aware that there are boxes that you could think about ticking. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, I hope this has helped people who are, who are asking about uh, uh, deck building. I think maybe giving them somewhere to start, maybe even giving them too much to think about. I don't know. But you know, if you if you see us on Discord or on, on Reddit or on Twitter and, you know, just say hello and ask us to, to work through a deck with you. You know, if you've got one got one you're interested in, in putting together, just ask us. I mean, I'm always happy to, to help, help people look at decks, give them the benefit of my experience, even though there's probably far better people they could be asking. Yeah, and part of that is just is being a, a part of the community and getting used to how people respond to your decks as well. Some people will only tell you the things that they don't like and that's fine because that's useful for their point of view and other people maybe not have much to say because they find it harder to evaluate decks that's okay too i in in a recent deck i did i did note the, the notable cards that weren't in the deck because i had to cut some things and i said i know these cards are all good cards but i've got to try other cards and if if your only comments are going to be you should have included those cards don't bother saying know that <laughs> you know that's okay We've got a, a few shout-outs. Shout-out to Scott for his 30 good cards deck. I can't wait to try that. Another person to check out their deck-building advice, particularly is, is Ian on Mythos Busters, has always got interesting comments, and he's particularly good on the resource cost curve. And then uh, shout-out to Ben as well. He's Azadin on Discord, because he's actually been messaging me with some questions, and it was one of the things that was prompting this episode. So thanks very much for messaging, and you know, hopefully this is helpful. Send me a message about all the things we've missed. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we're on drawn to the flame podcast at gmail.com. We're drawn to the flame on Facebook. We're drawn to the flame on Twitter. 
You can find me on Twitter. I'm FB, E-P-H underscore B-E-E. And I'm Zozo on ArkhamDB. If you see my decks, give me a like. And I'm Zooey Glass, I believe, on Discord. And I'm sort of around the place with the Z and O. Peter, where can people find you? Well, I'm everywhere as United. Uh, in fact, you've just reminded me, if, if you see one of my decks on, on ArkhamDB, please like it, because I think I'm at 399 rep, and I just need one more person to like something I've done to get up to 400. So if you know that someone's going to like one of Peter's decks, if you <laughs> also go. are listening and have liked one in the past, can you go and unlike, unlike it. it so that he stays at 399? Damn that you! Would... <laughs> that <would> really <laughs> help me out. Yeah, so yeah, I'm I'm united everywhere, and I've been asking people for deck help with my decks. So if you fancy me um, giving you some nonsense ideas, you know, shoot me a message. I think because he he tweeted earlier and said he was surprised we did it. I'm also going to say thanks again to to who is it Ben who did our our logo? Yeah, Ben S F Rembrandt. S F Rembrandt. Yeah, that, that, that's that's what I remember him as. <laughs> uh, but yeah, the, I. Can't say enough how much I love the logo. So thanks again. Uh, check out his Instagram, which is SF Rembrandt. Uh, I think there's probably still a link on our Facebook page. So yeah, thank you very much for listening. Thank you. So once you've got I'll stop, that, I'll stop interrupting now. No, that's fine. That's fine. Once you've got, I was, I was intending to do this just really quickly as well, but I'm, I'm yeah, yeah. I'm I'll, I'll, my, that's why I'll shut up. Descriptions. That's sorry. Thanks for the warning. I oh, I was adequately braced. I'm glad I managed to warn you. <laughs> That's how Frank sees it. <laughs> Brilliant. Well, I, I think that's about everything. If you've ever, uh, have you ever watched Glee? No, you know? I have never watched Glee. Sorry. The 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 dreadful head cheerleading coach ha- gets a like a spot on the local um, local TV channel. It's like a sort of Fox News spoof, and she does these sort of rants about how immigrants are ruining the country, right. and she always finishes with. And that's how Sue sees it. And she does a little C in her hand, which is just, like, makes no sense. Anyway, okay. I'll cut all this out.